When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hey all you heroes and champions, crows, pirates, and inquisitors. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast. I'm Shelby. And I'm Austin. And we are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe. From the Maker to Lyrium to Aravels, we will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. All right, welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we talk about all things Dragon Age regarding its lore. I am Austin, also known as Teacup. I am one of your hosts for this podcast. And I'm SheCup. I'm your other host. All right, so we are back from our very special character deep dive last week, our uh, very long episode. I don't think this episode will quite be that long, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. Because it is important. And so what are we talking about today? Yeah, well, I mean, this topic is also very intimately connected with Solus too. Um, And we are talking about the Fade and the Veil both tonight. Big topics. Yeah, and interesting topics. I think when I first played Origins, I thought they were synonyms for like the same thing. I didn't realize they were two different things, really. Very lore centric topics Mm -hmm. not like this is not a day one beginner topic you know and it's a very beyond like very deep topic because the fade and the veil are both natural occurring instances in the world you can point to proof like yes there is a fade yes there is a veil like that's true i wouldn't necessarily say the veil is naturally occurring though at least if we take solace at his word that he created but that's my whole point is each of these groups the dwarves the humans the chantry the elves the dalish elves they're all going to have a different explanation for why what these things are and what their purpose is yes and we will get into each and every single one of their viewpoints too tonight right it's kind of like describing what the fate is and its function is kind of when you think about multiple religions having different sets of beliefs around the sun Yeah, very similar. All right, well, let's get into it. Okay, you know, I always start out with my fun facts. Uh, This season's going to be a little different, though, with the fun facts. We just have less of them. And when we get into the demons and spirits, there's just not really, like, fun facts because there's not really enough information for me to have them. So be prepared for that. But tonight we do have a couple. So the Fade is basically Thetis's version of the beyond or like the spiritual realm. It is like a metaphysical place, but also a physical place. At the same time, it's very, very confusing. And I think it's supposed to be confusing intentionally because people like who are affiliated with the circles and, and whatnot they very much don't want you to be curious about the fade because of its connections to demons and spirits. My next fun fact, which is really like three in one, um, is that the word fade to describe this place 
is a word that originated with the Dalish, which means it originated after the time of the ancient elves. Interestingly, if it originated with the Dalish. And then also connected to the Fade is the Veil, which the Veil is, is basically what separates the Fade from the physical realm that we know as Thetis. So you can think of it like a barrier, even though it's not technically a physical barrier in that way, but you can think of it that way. I mean, it kind of is a physical barrier. I know I it's get- not, but like, I mean, look at or look at Inquisition. There's a giant hole in the sky. Well, that's not the veil's fault. Right. I know, but like that, bre- the breach is a hole in the veil. So to me, that communicates that it is kind of a physical barrier. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess we'll find out in DAD. But that's all the fun facts I've got for today. Okay, so before we can even talk about what the Fade is and like its involvement and everything like that, we've got to talk about the different belief systems because every belief system in Thetis, every religion, every people group, as you mentioned earlier, they all have different views regarding the fade and the veil. And we don't necessarily want to treat any of these beliefs as more privileged or, or more legitimate or more accurate than any other belief system. So we want to present all of them as far as we know in this episode. And, and so some of them we will have to spend more time talking about just because we have more information on that. But that is not to say that we agree with or we think that one's the most correct. Uh, it's just the one we have more information on. So I guess we should start with the Chantry since that's the one that we at least know of that goes back the farthest. So the Chantry teaches that the Fade is where the maker formed and created the physical world and all living creatures. It is often referred to within the Chantry as a well of souls and lyrium is the water. It very much ties back into the Titans and, and Mythal and all of those theories with, with that language to me. Yeah, the use of like well of souls. I've seen some people potentially use that term to talk about the well of sorrows, even though they're not the same thing. But just the coordination between these two wells that are seemingly extremely powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So according to the Chantry, the Fade is also the first place that was created by the maker. And then he created the spirits to populate the Fade. And they are referred to as the maker's first children. It's not until after the maker becomes dissatisfied with the spirit's lack of creativity that he then creates the physical world, which we know of as Thetis. It makes me wonder, like, what was his intention with the spirits then? If he's so dissatisfied, what he created the fade for what purpose? And then what purpose was it to populate it with the spirit? I guess my question is not as much about purpose as it is about expectations. Like, what did he expect the spirits to create? You know, like, what did he expect them to do in the fade? Did he expect them to, like, build cities and 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 towns and farms and metropolises, like, in the same way? You know, I, I don't know. It's interesting. You probably do not know this off the top of your head. And you might recall from our episode on the Maker. But does Threnody's 5 use that in our image or in his image? language yes um but i i don't remember the exact phrasing of it but i do remember us us talking about that extensively and how it mimics the bible right and i'm just curious like are the spirits made in the maker's image or is it just human and elves based on Threnody's five that are made in the maker's image. I don't know. I would have to do more research into that. But yeah. but what makes you ask that question? Well, because like I can see the expectation being that they create something if the spirits are made in the maker's image. Because the maker is by default a creator. Like sure. that's his identity. His identity is in that he makes things. Yeah, I, d- I don't know. That sounds like a really good uh, idea for an episode, though. That was the podcast equivalent to that's a really good paper idea. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. So um, what we literally see in the fade as the black city off like far in the distance, you can always see it in the fade. This was once the golden city, which was where the maker lived. When allegedly to venture magisters 
attempted to physically enter the fade. This is what blackened the city. Is it allegedly? Like at this point in the game, is it allegedly? Um, I mean, it's not allegedly that they went there. I guess the allegedly is referring to the blackening of the golden city. Because, you know, Corypheus has that like sick line that's, I've seen the throne of the gods and it's empty. And this is what he's referring to. He's referring to the black city, the golden city, which is where the maker is supposed to live. And so they enter there and the maker's not there. Which like tracks with like the cautionary mythology tale of humanity trying to reach divinity and it not going well for humanity. Yeah. I mean, this is a story in the Bible. It's a totally different story. Um, they try to build a tower to God and it doesn't work, obviously. So it's a total totally different narrative whatever you want to call it but I think the point behind it is similar that when you as the created try to attain the seat of God you're gonna fail right but now I'm just thinking of like biblical humans meeting like fetus humans and they're being like oh when we tried to reach the maker we got this horrible blight that tries to destroy the world what happened to you oh we got different languages Yeah, and then I can just imagine them like the death stare and a Liliana with like a knife to stab them. (laughs) But to me, this is a little bit still off topic. To me, though, I know a lot of people when they hear Corypheus say, I've seen the throne of the maker, I've seen where he sat, whatever, and it was empty. They take it to mean that, okay, the maker's not real and that's confirmation of this fact. I don't agree with that take at all. Because in Chantry lore, for the Chantry belief system, they believe that when the Tevinter Magisters entered the Fade, immediately it was like sullied, essentially. And that's what made the Golden City turn black and the Maker left at that point. So they're just entering the Fade. They haven't even necessarily reached the Black City. So by the time they do reach the city, yeah, the maker's gone. He's gone somewhere else. So for him to say, for Corypheus to say, I've seen the throne of the maker and it's empty, isn't really a revelation in terms of Chantry belief systems. Right, right. I mean, they, it's just kind of like, I feel of it more of a taunt to the Inquisitor of a thing of like, I've seen the throne of your God and it's empty, meaning that your God has no power here. You were not stronger than me because your God doesn't care about where you are. I mean, it's hard to argue with that logic. Yeah, I mean, I w- if I was a, like a normal fetus, the Dogian, I wouldn't think that the maker cared about me or that the maker loved me. Well, I don't think there's anything in, in the, the chant of light even that talks about the maker loving you. It's all about Andraste loving you. Like Andraste is the one that loves. She's the nurturing figure. She's the caring figure not the maker. So if I was a regular average every other girl in Thetis, F the maker. I don't care about that man. I do not care about that man. Would I still be Androstian? Probably because she's the girl boss in her own way. But the maker? Mm-mm, no thanks. I'm good. I don't need him. Coming soon to a local smirch store near you. Dragon Age Lorecast. F the maker. <laughs> Anyway, that's my Chantry hot take of the day. (laughs) To get back to our actual topic of the day, the last thing I really have to say about the Chantry beliefs in the Fade are that they believe that when a person dies, the soul passes through the Fade into the afterlife and to the Maker's side. Those who have turned away from the maker, meaning me, enter the fade and are lost, returning to the ether from which they were formed. This could also mean returning to the void as well. So they are then stuck in the fade or the void and doomed to wander endlessly. Also, though, alternatively, some verses of the chant of light hint at the possibility of reincarnation or even life after death which is interesting um and to me this kind of like okay we've got some conflicting opinions here we've got some conflicting theological beliefs really just goes to show you how well um the writers or how much time and effort the writers put into making the chantry 
and it's religion, a believable religion, because I will tell you right now, there's not a religion out there who has a religious text that doesn't have at least minor contradictions in it. It just, it doesn't exist. So to me, the fact that the chant of light does have contradictions in it makes this more of a realistic religion to me. Yeah, I have a point that is completely another direction. So so let's go back to Inquisition. The Inquisitor opens the portal to the Fade and sees the spirit of hope or compassion or whatever it is that takes the form of divine Justinia. And then there's a whole thing about, did you actually, was it actually Justinia in the Fade? And everyone wants to know, was it actually Justinia? Now, after reading this, it would not be a good thing for it to actually be Justinia. That would not be a good thing for the Chantry. That would mean that she was not in the maker's favor. Right, right. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because I think in conversation with Liliana, you can say, I believe it was her. And that's like comforting to Liliana, which this just might be like, you know, the lore is so vast in Dragon Age that sometimes writers are human and they forget things. Yeah, I agree with that. But also in conversations with Cassandra, it's kind of the opposite, right? Where she she doesn't quite say it's not her and you shouldn't believe that. But I think she's more on the side of it wasn't her. I miss her. I wish she was still with us. And as the Inquisitor, you can kind of lead the conversation toward either way, you know, this was, this was something that helped us in this moment. And that's really like Cassandra's kind of faith point throughout the whole game is that it doesn't matter whether or not you're actually the Herald of Andraste or whatever that is, or was actually Andraste in the fate doesn't matter. The fact that you're exactly what we needed when we needed it is the maker's will to me. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a really mature way to look at it. But do you have any other last final thoughts on the Chantry beliefs toward the Fade? I am just really impressed. Shout out to all the writers over at Dragon Age for a very well put together eschatology and like what and soteriology. Why don't you explain what soteriology and eschatology are for our listeners? Because I I don't think everyone knows what they are. Yeah. So like eschatology is like what you think about the end times and like what a religion offers as hope for the end times. Not just the end times. Like that's a very Christian way of talking about it. Like the end of the world, but also like what happens when you die. All of that is wrapped up in eschatology. Yeah. And then like soteriology is like a fancy Christian word for like the method of salvation which ties into eschatology. And but I just think it's very well crafted and feels real to me. Like it feels like if I encountered this in our world, I'd be like, okay, like this could be a world religion. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and, you know, another thing that, that is um, also makes it real is how passionate people are like go scroll through the Reddit, the Dragon Age Reddit, and you can find people who very passionately believe the Chantry is wrong. It must be totally changed. Here are all the issues with it. And then there are other people who think, okay, but the system of the Chantry, like what it does for the world needs to stay. Like the Chantry is good, et cetera. If it was written badly, it wouldn't inspire those kind of reactions. Correct. And I will say that I tend to fall on the line of like the Chantry does a lot of things bad. And I don't want to say they're wrong because I don't necessarily think they're wrong. But I think if you took them away, it would be a detriment to Thetis just because it's so ingrained into so much of the systems that it just, if it one day disappeared, you would see entire cultures collapse. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, And then the last thing I want to say about the Chantry is that it's really easy, I think, for us to see the Chantry as the dominant viewpoint um, on these kinds of things. Like this is what they say is the correct way and everything else is secondary. And I don't agree with that, but the Chantry's viewpoint is the first one we come into contact with in Dragon Age Origins. So we do have to be conscious of that um, when we talk about the other viewpoints that we're fixing and going to. So let's go to the next one which is Elven beliefs um, on 
the faith. And so when I say elven beliefs, I specifically mean Dalish beliefs. I think we might talk a little bit about the elves, uh, maybe, but generally most city elves, they, you know, are members of the Chantry. They worship Andrasse, not necessarily the ancient elven beliefs. So that's the first thing I have to say. The second thing is remember that the Dalish elves and the ancient elven the ancient elves are separate. They're different. They have different belief systems as we, we know. So in this section, we're talking about Dalish beliefs only. So the Dalish typically refer to the fade as the beyond, and they believe that it's a very holy place. They do recognize that it, that it has a lot of things uh, that can hurt you, and that it can be a dangerous place, but overwhelmingly they see it as a holy place first and foremost. And that's because it was once the home of the ancient elven gods, as we know, are referred to as the Evanuris. So that's why the Dalish typically refer to it as a holy place. The Dalish also believe that it is the fault of Fem Harel, the dread wolf, and his betrayal during the time of Arlathan, which caused the Evanuris to be imprisoned in the eternal city in the Fade. Meanwhile, as we know, the Dread Wolf roams all throughout the Fade, and it is said by the Dalish that he feasts on the souls of the dead. That's really interesting because I'm going to take a little tangent just real quickly. Okay. Uh, so I'm playing through Skyrim again for the millionth time. Millionth? The main... That's a generous. Yeah. And I just finished the main quest the other day. And Alduin, who is like the firstborn of Akatosh, the god of time, he roams the Nord heaven, Sovngarde, feasting on the souls as well. What was this god's name? Uh, it's not a god. It's a dragon, Alduin. Okay, so it's not a wolf. No, but it is like a very bestial creature feasting on the souls of, in the like kind of Valhalla of Skyrim. Yeah, that's interesting. And which is interesting because of obviously like Skyrim and Norse mythology are very closely related, probably even more than the Dalish are to it, but similar parallels. And yeah, that is really interesting. Um, I also think it's so interesting to me that the Dalish see the fate as a holy place, right? But then at the same time, they're like, yeah, Ben Harrell is there. And so like those two things don't add up to me. Well, it's interesting to me because... Fen Harel is there in the Fade, which, you know, isn't, if we take Solus at his word, isn't technically a false statement. Because he says he spends his time dreaming and roaming the Fade. And we know from Dalish beliefs that they believe he roams the Fade and whispers in the dreams of the Dalish. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's, that's, those two things are not at odds with each other at all. No. Though... Another point is Corypheus's statement is so much more detrimental to a Dalish Inquisitor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've never thought about that, but you're so right. That is so true. Be too left on the Solus, Ben Harrell, Dread Wolf level, but also on the Veneris level because they should still be locked away. Right. It's just more proof that I think that Bioware intended the Canon Inquisitor to be an elven mage. They didn't, though. They intended it to be a human. It was only going to be a human-only game. Wow. Originally. I know. It's so interesting how the story develops and we're all like, this game is written as if the canon is an elven inquisitor. It is and it isn't, though, because there's so many dialogue options, especially when you go to the temple and the Arbor Wilds. Like, if you're an elf, Morgan basically, like, elf explains to you. And then you have to be like, who's Mathal? It's like, you should know who Mathal is. But... Anyway, let's get back to the point. So my last thing that I have to tell you about with Dalish beliefs about the Fade is that Dalish elves believe that their ancestors during the time of Arlathan, when they lived, they didn't die, but rather they entered a dreamlike state called Uthanera, um, which is when the souls of the ancient elves wandered the Fade. And they are then accompanied by Thalandin and Durthamon, who are two of the Evanuris. And then they would learn the secrets of dreams, and some would even return to the people, the Elven people, with newfound knowledge. 
So this is something that the Dalish still find to be important. It's not something that's practiced today, but the fact that it happened is important to the Dalish and it's something that they remember about the faith. It's very interesting because like there is a sense of in other world religions that to enter a holy of holy place is actually dangerous. Like there's a Mm -hmm. danger that's attached to there. And the thing that's coming to mind is the Jewish tradition of entering what was called the holy of holies in the temple. And that if you as the high priest were not purely clean or like of a pure heart, God would kill you right then and there. So much that they used to tie a rope around the ankle so they could pull the body out. Yeah, that's true. But also this goes back to our previous conversation about contradictions in religions, because also in the Bible, King David went into the Holy of Holies and ate all the bread and he was just fine. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. So let's talk about Solus, which I just gave him his own section. Um, I think last week I said something like, it's not elven in origin, it's soulless in origin. And this is very much the same. Like soulless is his own thing. But as for now, he's the best, the best we have when it comes to the beliefs of the ancient elves. So according to Solus, ancient elves called the act of creating the veil, holding back the sky, which suggests to me two things. Number one, that the veil is indeed something physical. And number two, that they referred to the fate itself as the sky. Yeah, it's interesting because the way Solus talks about the time before the veil is that basically the space of Thetis and the fade were one and the same. Yes, which is my next point. And that's that, you know, he tells us that the fade during the time of the ancient elves was basically integrated with the physical world of Thetis. We don't know how that works exactly, but this is what Solus tells us. And that he even claims to have created the veil himself, which then separates Thetis and the fade permanently. So the fade then becomes this more metaphysical place where we go when we dream rather than an actual part of the world we're currently living in that we can move back and forth between. Right, right. And so you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. But if we talk about the fade and the veil, like when the rifts open, they're almost always like hovering above a point as if almost kind of in the sky. But they're also like in the world. And like, it makes me think of the fate is kind of like another dimension as opposed to a physical space beyond Thetis. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I do think the, the, that it's another dimension is actually a, a pretty close uh, representation to, to how it's presented. Right. And, you know, we do see this kind of telling in other video games and other lore places. Like we think of I forget what its exact name is and Toasty can come onto the discord and tell me what it actually is. But in the Witcher, when all of the like spheres converge and all the people come in from the different worlds and different dimensions, and then they separate, I kind of think about like that is kind of how the fade was. It's like two dimensions are like on top of each other at once. Mm -hmm. And so they exist in the same space. Which it's really, that's really hard for the way we view the world to conceptualize because we are only used to thinking in a one reality experience. Yes. Yeah. So let's move on to Tevinter. So ancient Tevinters, they believed that the Fade is the realm of the old gods. And you know what? I'm sure there are some people in Tevinter that still do believe this, but but it is now a minority viewpoint. Whereas back in ancient Tevinter, this was the majority dominant religion. And so then because of this, the golden city was the center of power for the old gods. So that's why Corypheus, as he was the high priest magister of the old god uh, Dumat, that's why he is so concerned with going to the Golden City, talking about the Golden City, coming back and telling us the Golden City's empty. It implies implications that like if the home of the old gods is the Fade, just I'm really confused like what exactly is an archdemon? And we'll probably have to get into that in another episode. Like, Yeah, yeah, well, we'll, yeah. So for Kunari, and this is my last faction group, whatever. For the Kunari, and this is so interesting to me because it's, totally different from everybody else 
uh, which tracks. But for the Kunari, the Fade is referred to as the land of the dead, and they are forbidden from going to the Fade. Well, now I'm taking Bull next playthrough. Bull's coming to Adamant. We're going to the Fade. Don't do anything. Don't do his side quests first. I mean, I'm not saying that because I know anything. I just am curious if him, when he goes to the Fade, if it's different uh, pre or post side quest. That makes sense. Just a curiosity. But also, like, do Kunari not dream? I don't know. I would assume they do. I guess they have a different understanding that when they're dreaming, they're not actually entering the fate. I don't know. But it makes sense. I just always feel bad for the Cerebos. I know. it. It's heartbreaking. The Cerebos is so sad. All right. Well, let's go to the break. Enchantment? Enchantment! You need me. Ugh. I am yours as always. All right, welcome to the middle of the show where we talk about all things about the podcast that don't have to do with the lore of Dragon Age. Uh, It's right now that we take time to thank our patrons. Thank you all for your support. And we do read out our first patrons on every episode of the show. And so Shelby, do you want to read them out? I sure can. Our first patrons are Lisa M, Genesis, Derek B, and Zuba. Thank you all for being our first couple of patrons. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for your support. We greatly appreciate it. If you would like to support us too on patreon.com, you can find that link in the episode description. You can also just go to patreon.com slash Dragon Age Lorecast and you should be able to find us too. That's a great way to support us. Another great way to support us is by liking or reviewing us on either Spotify or Apple. On Apple Music, you can leave a review with words. And if you leave a five-star review, we will read it out on a future episode of the show. We're also still doing our Show Us Your Heroes, Hawks, and Heralds. Uh, You can share that via our Discord or on Twitter or via our email at dalorecast at gmail.com. So yeah, you can share those with us. We do not have a character to share today either. And the last thing I'm going to tell you about is our Discord server. Um, If you want to come hang out with us, if you want to talk about Dragon Age, if you want to talk about any other video game you're playing, talk about all your crazy theories, just hang out with people, be a part of our community. The Cups Podcasting and More Discord server is the place to be. You'll find the link to the server in the episode description. Come on, chat with us about Dragon Age, about our other podcast, Assassin's Creed Lorecast, or the Holocron Histories, Star Wars, Assassin's Creed, Dragon Age, other video games. You can look at pictures of our official Dragon Age Lorecast mascot, Snips, um, our dog. We love her and she is crazy. Come and join and talk with us. You can also join the Robots Radio Discord, which is also found in the episode description. In there, you will find a bunch of other podcasts that are awesome to listen to, such as other Rocket Club podcasts or other podcasts in the Robots Radio Network. If there's a video game, odds are the Robots Radio Network has a podcast about it. All right, let's get back to it. Well, that was uh, Orlesian. Oh, you fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. Okay, so what is the Fade really? Well, unfortunately, we don't really know. We can't quite verify what it's made out of, where it is, and we barely know how to get there. So it's a big question mark for me. What we do know is that the Fade is a world that has rock and raw lyrium. It's always nighttime in the Fade and gravity affects nothing equally. The only constant in the Fade is the Black City, which, as we've mentioned before, is what used to be the Golden City. Now it is a shadowy metropolis that's floating on the horizon. No one has reached the Black City since the ancient magisters in minus 395 ancient, which is Corypheus and his ilk. Interesting. Why is that interesting? I just think, well, it makes sense because no one else reaches the Black City. But I just wonder, I think there are dark spawn in there. Okay, interesting. Um, before you tell me why, though, I have to paint a picture for you. So when I said nobody's been to the Black City in, since minus 395 ancient over a thousand years ago, right? All I could picture was um, Goku <laughs> running along snake that way. Road. Snake <laughs> way forever. Just 
just uh, Corypheus and and his pals running towards the the black, the great golden city. Yep, exactly. But anyway, I think there are dark spawn in there because I think something turned the magisters. You know, the chantry tells them that they were the first dark spawn. But I think that they came in contact with something even more ancient, perhaps one of the forbidden ones. I think that there's something in there that's not the maker. So much well, that would... either Corypheus forgot or he didn't want to tell us what he found. It would be interesting if, you know, we've compared the Chantry's belief systems to Christianity a lot. It would be interesting if there was an entity in the Chantry belief systems who is similar to the devil or the Satan figure, who could then be the one who originated the dark spawn, who now occupies the black city. I mean, the closest we have are the four forbidden ones. I mean, because they are like embodiments of evil. And soulless. Yeah, they're soulless. I mean, I, I, I do not think that he is evil. I do not think that he is a Satan figure, but... In terms of creatures who have full authority over this otherworldly plane that's dangerous and out to get you. I mean, yeah, I can see the connection there. You know, actually, not not, not to actually you, um, but <laughs> I was just thinking about the actual meaning of the word Satan or yes. Satan, which means in Hebrew means the accuser. And so like a lowercase Satan could be just a prosecutor attorney. Solus is kind of an accuser. Yeah, he is because he's the only one that like caused that calls out the Evanuris for mm-hmm. their sins, their crimes against the people. Right. And so it's interesting that Solus doesn't really tell us about what's in the fade other than spirits. He tells us about the time of the Evanuris. That's what he reveals. But he would be the one to know what's in the Black City. If there's anything. Yeah, well, he also, I mean, he does tell us other things about the Fade, but he tells us about things that have happened in Thetis that he's learning because of the proximity in the Fade. But let's move on from this conversation a little bit. So at its core, the Fade is shaped by dreams. Almost anything can appear in the Fade. We see this happening all the time in the games and the books. Um, some examples of this are in DAO. We see our companions in different scenes with important people in their lives. We also see this happening in the books with King Merrick seeing Catriel. So it's very often said when you go to the Fade, like if you expect to see a demon, you're going to see a demon. It's kind of about like mind over matter. You've got to put those intrusive thoughts like outside of your brain. Otherwise, that's what's going to visualize. That's what's going to happen when you're in the fade. Right. And it's interesting, at least in DAO, there are different ways to break your companions out of their nightmare, basically. Yeah. And it's normally like a persuasion check, a coercion check, a charisma check of like reminding them who they are and what's going on. And in some cases, using logic to like think through their reasoning. So I just think that's interesting that it's more of like, it is that kind of mind over matter, a willpower in resisting the fate and how much of like a mage has, it's just willpower of willing things to happen is that's like the basis of magic. So let's talk about entering and leaving the fate a little bit. So when I say, I think I've said this in other episodes that we've been to the fate in every game. This is both true and not true. So we have not been to the fate physically in every game. I believe we've only been to the fate physically in Dragon Age 2 with Fainreal's quest and in Dragon Age Inquisition after Adamant. In Dragon Age Origins, just we, we it's not physically, we're not physically there. We're just there in our minds. We're dreaming, basically. But still, the fate is very important to the games, and we have been there a lot as the main characters. So regardless, people of Thetis visit the fate mentally when they dream, except um, they do not remember the time they spend there. So it's kind of like they've woken up and they don't remember their dreams. Dwarves are the only exception to this. Dwarves do not dream, so they do not mentally go to the fate. Kunari are also interesting, an interesting case, because they claim that they do not dream in the same way that humans and elves do. And they're very, very, very rarely encountered in the fade because the Kune expressly forbids it. And that's what we were discussing earlier. Mages, on the other hand, they tap into the fade all the time when they cast spells and when they dream. And they're able to be conscious while while traveling in the fade. 
So members of the circle can and do travel to the Fade via the aid of lyrium, especially and specifically during one's harrowing. And then, of course, we have dreamers like Fainreal, and they are special uh, mages, and they're capable of entering the Fade at will whenever they want without the use of lyrium. So that can be really dangerous if they get possessed, and that's part of Fainreal's whole uh, quest in Dragon Age 2. And mages are also able to bring other people into the Fade with them, even dwarves and golems, which we know we've done in the games. And then also everything that exists in the Fade is because it's been thought into existence. And then you are then putting your expectations into the world earlier, like we talked about earlier. So dreamers, however, they can change and affect the Fade more than a regular mage or person could. Right. For example, like when you think about Fanriel's quest, his version of the Fade looks exactly like the circle area, the gallows and Kirkwall. Yeah. So the last thing I really have to talk about with the Fade is that every living being in Thetis enters the Fade when their spirit leaves their body after death. Fade spirits like justice can then claim that the soul they claim that the souls of the dead pass to the fade but really don't know what happens to them after this so the afterlife what happens after the fade etc this is all kind of an unknown and that's really the more talatasi's role is to help guide spirits through the fade right or souls through the Fade. Yes, it's one of their jobs. It's not their only job. Well, that was a lot about the Fade. I think let's talk about the one and only, the Veil. Let's move on to that. And then we get so... to our side character. Or not get to our side character. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you're not excited about this one. But the Veil. So connected to the Fade is the Veil, for now. The Veil is not really an object. Uh, it can't really be touched or seen, even. It is essentially a magical barrier that repels the Fade from the physical world. It is also often used as a metaphor by in-game scholars to explain the differences between the realities of the Fade and the realities of Thetis. So it, it is a real thing that Solus claims to have created, but it is also very often used as a literary device. Which makes sense because like, if you think about it, like a veil is something that obscures something from view. So True. it's an easy metaphor to make. Absolutely. So there is no mention of a time when the veil didn't exist in human history. So humans arrived in Thetis in minus 3100 ancient. Solus had to have created the veil at some point before that. If, if we what believe. he says. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, I'm not going to go through like all those belief systems like we did earlier with the fade, just because we don't know enough. Um, but we will talk about the Chantry and Elven beliefs. So the Chantry, this one's going to be short. The Chantry believes that the maker created the veil. That's it. They don't have, they don't pontificate on the veil. So uh, for elves, Solus claims that it was he, Fen Harrell, who created the veil in order to banish the Evanuris. This was, of course, to prevent them from destroying the world out of their own pride and excess and was retribution for the murder of Mithal. However, because Elvenon was so heavily dependent on magic and because the veil severed the elven people from the Fade, the Veil's creation led to Elvenon's demise and the loss of the Elven immortality. Additionally, and this was so interesting to me, this was something I did not know, Skyhold's original name could have been translated as the place where the sky was held back, suggesting that the Veil was created there. Solus also confirmed Skyhold was his castle during the time of Elvenon. That's interesting to me because now I want to know what was his little rotunda used for? His little tower that he's always in. Yeah. He chose to go there. Yeah, he's the one that points Skyhold out to us. It also kind of makes sense. I'm like, I know like in the games or in the game, we don't experience this, but it might be in the other material, but we don't ever encounter any rifts in, the, in Skyhold. Right. So maybe that's because the veil is the strongest there. Yeah, I don't know. But this is a really great transition into our next topic, 
which is tears in the veil. So the veil tends to be weaker in places that feature or have experienced extensive death or use of magic. It tends to weaken in places that have featured extensive death because spirits are attracted to death. And so they press against the veil. Um, And then the veil is particularly thin at night when most people sleep and spirits are most active. And then finally, the use of blood magic can allow the veil to be torn so that demons can physically pass through it into the waking world. So for me, this would suggest the opposite of what you're arguing, that there's been so much magic in Skyhold. There's been so much history made there. Wouldn't it be a weak place? I guess it really depends. Like, because is it a place of death? Like, yes, there's a lot of magic that's used there. It's a place of safety, really. True, but but we're saying that the veil can weaken because of death or magic. It doesn't have to be both. It's either or. Why they decided to put the Kirkwall Circle in the gallows is beyond me. I know. I cannot get over it. I cannot get over it. Like, not only is it an excessive use of magic, because it used to be slaves of the Tevinter Imperium, but slavery, trauma, Mm -hmm. and death, and anguish. I feel like a novice in the Chantry would go, this isn't a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a few more things I have about the veil, and then we can get into our side character. So, a tear in the veil or even a weakened veil can be recognized because you'll kind of see a greenish hue, which is what the breach looks like. So the green of Inquisition is really a symbol of a weakening veil. And then the Dalish, actually, they refer to the place where the veil is thin as Sethineron, which means a land of waking dreams. So also, last thing about the veil, places where the veil is thin or even torn have certain characteristics. And so there are certain plants and animals that gravitate toward those places. So examples include Felindaris grows where the veil is weak and giant spiders congregate where the veil is weak. So if you're in Inquisition looking for places where the veil is thin, you'll often find that plant, Felindaris, and you need that one for making one of the, the potions. The places that really stick out to me where you can find Felindaris often are in the Hinterlands and by Suladin Keep in the Imprees Dulian. Where Ishmael is. Imshale. It's also interesting to me because like the logistics of like how Corypheus makes the hole in the sky makes sense because he basically uses a giant explosion to tear open the sky that kills a lot of people. Thus, he probably weakened the veil in that moment. So what do you think about the veil? Do you believe Solus? Do you side with the Chantry? If you had to pick one, where do you land? I don't really know, mainly because to create something on the scale that Solus is talking about, it would take a level of magic that we have not seen. Even Fainriel, who's a dreamer, can't alter the fade that much. You're talking about completely changing reality. Yes, you could say that he's a very powerful mage and that it was before the veil, so he had more power, but still. I do see your point, but I think that even... Going back to Trespasser, like we've never seen a mage as powerful as Solus in Trespasser. He can petrify people with a, a look, with the blink of an eye. I think what you have to remember is that Solus, when when we're in the base game, is a weak Solus. He has just reawoken from his thousand plus year slumber and he doesn't have his full powers. And he he probably even doesn't into, into a Trespasser. So to me... I do think it's possible. I do tend to agree with Solus because what does he have to gain to lie about that? To me, I don't see what he would gain by lying about that. Right, right. I understand that. I think it's also important to note that Fenharel is the betrayer and the deceiver. And if we compare him to other betrayal and trickster gods, they play the long game. So tearing down the veil couldn't could very well not be Solus's goal at all yeah it could all be a misdirection to get the inquisitor and the inquisition to behave a certain way to his actual goal yeah 
I don't, I don't know if we will ever get the answers to that until DAD comes out. Okay. Well, let's get into our side character for the day. Okay. Today we're talking about Jowen. Austin is, is basically making the, the vomit emoji face. Yeah. <laughs> I know you hate him. Uh, lots of people hate him. He is the but... only Dragon Age character that I hate. Okay. Other than, Mer- other than Meredith. Well, that's fair. So let's talk about Jowen a little bit and maybe maybe you'll get your opinion changed. So Jowen is an apprentice mage in the circle of Ferelden, Kinlock Hold. He came to the circle around five or six years old after his father abandoned him in their village's chantry. His mother at the time considered him to be an abomination. I don't know if this means an actual abomination, like you have a demon in you, or like, oh, you're an abomination to our family. I would think the latter. I agree, but the use of that word is interesting. You can't deny that. So we meet Jowen in Origins in the main quest with Connor and Isolde in Red Cliff. However, if you choose the Mage Origin in DAO, you get significantly more time with Jowen and you learn more about who he is. He's even one of your friends. In the backstory, we learn that Jowen has been having an affair with a Chantry initiate. Her name is Lily. This is expressly forbidden. So to make Jowen's problems worse, he has also been suspected of dabbling in blood magic and they will not let him undergo his harrowing yet. Lily has even found proof that Jowen will be made a tranquil. So Jowen then asks the hero of Ferelden to help him find and destroy his phylactery. You can either choose to reveal his plan to first enchanter Irving or you can genuinely help Jowen regardless of your choices. Knight Captain Gregor sentences Jowen to death and sentences Lily to go to Aonar, which is like the mage's prison. And then Jowen uses blood magic in an attempt to protect Lily. Once he reveals that he truly is a blood mage, Lily rejects him. Irving says that Jowen's troubles came from unmet expectations. Uh, that essentially he was disappointed in himself and believed that Irving, the first enchanter, was as well. Irving says that he wasn't disappointed in Jowen, that there really would have been no cause to make him tranquil if he hadn't turned to blood magic. During the Magi origin, however, Irving never contradicts that Jowen is going to be made tranquil, only that the plans to make Jowen tranquil, whether true or not, were leaked to Lily so that she would then be connected to Jowen's scandal when he inevitably attempts to destroy his phylactery and flee the circle. Irving kind of justifies all this by saying that Lily's just as guilty as Jowen, and if he's destined to suffer, then Lily should as well. I really disagree with this, um, but Irving Irving further kind of connects Lily to this scandal Uh, Because he wants to use this incident to remind the Chantry that they're not perfect, that they're not above reproach. And I understand Irving's wish to do this and and want to like defend the the mages of the circle, but he's using people to do this. That's my issue. Um, And really Lily is an innocent victim in all of this. Like, yeah, she, she falls in love with Jowen, but she doesn't really do anything wrong. She doesn't use, use blood magic. She's not the instigator of this plan, like she's just kind of caught up in this because of Jowen. So I do really feel for her the most. Right. And if you do the mage origin, you don't really kill anyone to get to the factory. Maybe some spiders. Yeah. Right. Which, so later in the game, Jowen claims that he only turned to blood magic because he could never catch up to his more competent mage friend. And then he thought that blood magic would give him the power and control to be a better mage like you if you choose the mage origin, which to me is so shitty because he's literally blaming you, the player character, all of these problems. Like, no, dude, no. Like, it's not the hero of Ferelden's fault that they were a more talented mage than you. You can't blame the hero of Ferelden for you turning to blood magic when you're threatened by their shadow. And this is really like my issue with Jowen is that everyone else is responsible for his problems except for him. Yeah, totally. So 
a lot of people, this is kind of a headcanon, but it's a headcanon that I believe. So I'm kind of semi-presenting it as um, real canon, but this is a headcanon. But a lot of people believe that Jowen was one of the mages that Uldred, who is like kind of the boss of that, of the circle quest, they believe that Jowen was one of the people that he introduced to blood magic. And then later betrayed to like further his own advancement. We don't have any confirmation that Jowen was affiliated with Uldred, but I do think that it makes sense. So Jowen uses blood magic to escape during the origin. And he was eventually cornered near Redcliffe Village by Knight Lieutenant Ermenrek Aramon. What a name. But Taryn Logan's men took Jowen into custody instead, and they imprisoned Ermenric in the dungeon of the Arl of Denerim's estate. So Ermenric is one of the people that we can let go at the end of the game, and that gets you a point during the land's meet. So Jowen can later be found imprisoned in Redcliffe Castle's basement during the Arl of Redcliffe quest. He was employed by Arlesa Isolde to tutor uh, her mage son in secret without him being taken to the tower. As we know, not all is well in Redcliffe Castle. Jowen was then suspected by Isolde of being behind the terrible disturbances that follow, which uh, in fact were caused by a demon possessing Connor, but he's old thinks it's all Jowen's fault. Jowen though, he does seem legitimately remorseful for the damage that he caused and he does want to make amends if he's allowed. The warden can then choose to kill him, free him, or leave him in the dungeon. If Jowen was freed from the basement and told to quote, run, I never want to see you again, then a new quest called Jowen's Intention will appear in the Chanter's Board section of the journal upon the conclusion of the Urn of Sacred Ash. Jowen can be encountered protecting a group of refugees, and the warden can elect either to kill him or let him go on to a new life and live under the alias Levin. This quest can only be completed by people playing on a PC due to a broken quest line in the console version of the game. I had never heard of this. And, and the reason why is because I've only ever played it on console. So I think this quest really does show you that Jowen is remorseful for his actions. Um, and he's trying to make up for that by helping these people and he's not a perfect person and he's not even a good person but he does feel guilty about the things that he's done and then a couple more things to say about Jowen so Jowen was actually originally scripted to be a full party companion to the warden the warden would have used the right of conscription to recruit him after healing Arl Eamon However, this was cut pretty early in the game's development, um, so we will never know what would have happened. I think it was cut the too many mage companions. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Interestingly, Jowen does not appear in the Dragon Age Keep. He doesn't. That's right. And then um, the final thing I have to say about Jowen is that in Awakening, there is a wanted list that you can find that has Jowen's name on it. And it is found on a Templar's corpse during a random encounter. So as we know, Jowen is still on, on the loose. Um, I don't like Jowen because I think that he is incredibly selfish. And I just really get frustrated by the mages who spout like, oh, you can't treat us all like we're demons and blood magic. And all succumb to blood magic like you can't treat us all like that and then you turn around and they're like but you're doing blood magic i know i know you hate them when they do that i will say i don't hate jowen as much as you seem to but i don't really have a good reason for that and honestly i think the only reason i don't like actually really hate him is because one time <laughs> one time one time I read a fanfic uh, that had Jowen as a character and it was really good. And so now I'm just kind of assuming that that fanfic um, Jowen is the real Jowen. So there's that. That is not the case. 
No, it is not. And even that Jalen, though, he wasn't necessarily a good person. Like, he did a lot of messed up things. Um, but, yeah. All right. Well, if that's it, then thank you for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. As always, you can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, email them to us at dalorecast at gmail.com. The Dragon Age Lorecast is a part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. You can join the Robots Radio Network Discord by clicking the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed our show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and give us a review. See you next time. Ever wanted to be a content creator but had no clue where to begin? Come join me as I sit down with content creators that have already faced the challenges you're up against as they discuss the tips and tricks that help them be successful. Here on The Content Creator's Guide, available wherever podcasts can be found.